Welcome to the Cedar Creek Church Podcast, where we share stories of life change and inspire you to take a next step in your own faith journey, to discover your purpose, and honor God with your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Cedar Creek Church Podcast. Today, we're resuming the Cedar Creek Church Podcast after a little hiatus, and I've asked Pastor Wes to join us to get a little more information about his life. Um, I think that there are some really awesome stories, and while we won't have time to uncover them all, um, I really wanted to share these stories with you all. So, hi, Wes. Hey, Sam. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so excited to sit down with you and just talk. Um, I've heard tidbits of stories over the years about your past with the FBI and how you were called into ministry and how life has changed since then. So, I think I'd like to start out just by saying, what was what was life like before ministry? What was FBI mm. Wes like <laughs> or who was he <laughs> oh, that's a great question that um so fbi west was different especially in the early days of the fbi um the fbi sent me to aiken south carolina sent myself and my family here um so you we, were already married at the time yeah so kelly and i got married um oh gosh here the dates go uh, 1994 <laughs> Uh, June of 94, and uh, I was a state agent working for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is kind of like SLED here in South Carolina. It's a state agency. When Kelly and I met, I was working undercover. Uh, that's why some of you will see old pictures of me with long hair and a beard and <laughs> wonder why was she crazy enough to like this guy. Um, but through that process, we, we were married in 94. Uh, will was born in October of 95, our first child, our son. And um, in that process began thinking about um, the FBI. It was something that I'd wanted to do from the time I was five years old. Uh, I had an uncle that was an FBI agent from the late 50s to the late 70s. And it all, I was always intrigued by him and by the stories and you know, grew up playing cops and robbers and all, all of that. Um, and because a good friend of mine um, said to me, hey, you know, I'm in this process of the FBI, you ought to consider it. I was like, well, maybe I should. And so that started that that journey and through the testing and all of that um, ended up getting hired on by the FBI and the FBI sent us to Aiken, South Carolina of all places. Um, I was a believer, um, though not practicing very much. Kelly and I had connected briefly with the church outside of Atlanta where we were living prior to joining the FBI uh, called Hebron Baptist Church in Decula, Georgia. <clears throat> the pastor there was a guy named Larry Wynn. He was like the state chaplain for either the GBI or for law enforcement in general. And so we dedicated Will there. We briefly attended there. Didn't really connect beyond the Sunday morning experience. It was a very uh, thriving church, but it was a traditional church. And mm-hmm. so suits and ties, dresses and pantyhose, <laughs> that kind of thing. And in the middle of that, uh, get the FBI sends us to Aiken, South Carolina, of all places. And so we end up here uh, five days before Christmas, 1996. Mm-hmm. We buy the house and we move in and begin our lives. And our next door neighbors uh, were a great couple and family, uh, Rick and Debbie Flippin. She's Debbie Flippin Hubbard now and uh, still a great friend, still a part of the West Campus. Uh, she and her husband, Brent Hubbard. And they invited us to church. And we said, well, what kind of church is it? And she said, I don't know. It's a church. She was from California and so didn't didn't grow up in traditional church either. And um, we were like, well, what denomination is it? You know, and she's like, I don't know. It meets in a daycare center. And <laughs> this was uh, December of 96, January of 97. 
shortly after the beginning of the year, we checked it out. We're like, well, we're going to go check out this church that's meeting in a daycare center. And it was different uh, than anything I had ever experienced. I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't have much experience with that. Kelly grew up in a very small, traditional Baptist church in Mississippi. And this was different. Uh, The music was really good. You could drink coffee, which was a plus for me. I was like, yeah, (laughs) I'll do that. You could wear shorts, you know, come as you are, casual. Uh, And it was Cedar Creek in the early days at New Generations, or what they used to call Jenna Gap. And um, our founding pastor, Richard Swift, was preaching. And uh, the music was different for the time. And we were drawn in by it. And through the messages and through the experience that we uh, were a part of week by week, um, we just were challenged to to grow in our faith. And so there were there were a series of events after that, like a Promise Keepers event uh, that happened at Williams Bryce Stadium. Uh, and that's that's crazy because the Promise Keepers event has come up on the C- the Cedar Creek Church podcast before really? with Don Nesbitt, one of the that? early episodes. Probably the same one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I shared a message a couple years ago where I, I called How I Met My Wingman, uh, and it was about Ron Stevens. Ron's been a part of Cedar Creek for 20 years or more. And um, Ron was a guy that night that God used in my life to respond. I wanted to go forward. It was one of those sort of rededicate your life, you know, make another commitment to Jesus, kind of get your life together. And I was sitting, I was standing there praying, Lord, please send somebody because I wanted to go, but I wasn't going to be the first. And Ron was that guy. Uh, Ron stepped out to go forward. And when he did, uh, I locked in like my wingman, right? I just, I went with him and we went down front. And um, that was sort of a, a spiritual line in the sand where I just made a decision that I wanted to be a better husband, want to be a better dad, want to be a better follower of Jesus and invite the Lord to just do some different things in my life. And so that was one of those early um, pivotal things that God did. Um, so we, you really became a part of Cedar Creek Church early on in the FBI career? Yeah. Okay. In my first year. I didn't realize that the two coincided. I thought FBI was prior to church. Okay. Yeah, no, it was right around the same time. We, I went to the academy in August of 96. We moved to Aiken in December of 96. We started visiting Cedar Creek in January of 97, almost okay. immediately. Because we knew, Kelly and I had made a decision that when we got settled, wherever God sent us, uh, we wanted to be a part of a church. We wanted to make faith a priority in our marriage and in our life and in the life of our then son, uh, infant son. And so it, it was all contemporaneous. Was that the word? <laughs> uh, it all happened around the same time. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, so that was it. started in 97 uh, in the daycare and in the early days of this place where we are today at the Banks Mill campus. And um I tell people all the time, those trees that are out front that are like 30 feet high, I helped plant them when they were five feet tall. And so uh, that's a cool picture of uh, something that we would hear years later at our 10th anniversary. uh, A guy challenged us and talked about planting shade trees that you'll never sit under, um, just laying down a foundation that would, you know, lead to future things. So Mm -hmm. cool stuff. So any big moments in the FBI or in those early days of Cedar Creek? Any, any stories that you find yourself going back to sharing to help share other life lessons that maybe our listeners haven't heard before? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, culturally, there was a lot going on. Uh, we were young parents um, in those early days. Our daughter was born two years later uh, here in Aiken um, at the Aiken Hospital. Uh, we joke all the time that um, the doctor that delivered her uh, is in home group with us. And, <laughs> Um, you know, just doing life. But uh, 9-11 happened, you know, three years, four years later, uh, which was a huge pivotal cultural thing for us. And 
It took us about three years to get in a home group. Kelly and I were here every Sunday just about. I mean, we made it a regular practice to even if we were on vacation, we would we'd plan so that we could be back because we didn't want to miss what mm-hmm. was going on every Sunday. It seemed like there was um it was a great message, it was great worship, it was great seeing the folks, you know, that how it is on a mm-hmm. Sunday when you're interacting with people and doing life with them. And when you get excited about what God is doing in your life, uh, you can't help but share that with other people and want to be around other people and want to tell that story. And so the opportunity to do that is uh, in the large group gathering and beyond that, serving other people. So making serving a priority. And we did that. And But home group was one of those things that we sort of, you know, we kind of kept at arm's length for about three years. Uh, Jay and Anita Judy, who have been longtime friends of ours, they were our very first home group leaders. Every Sunday, uh, in fact, right here in this building out there in that room, um, mm-hmm. would say to us, you ought to come to home group this week. Come and see us. And we were like, yeah, yeah, no, we need to do that. But our kids were little. And um, at least in the early days, they were. Will was in daycare. And um, it wasn't until Hannah was born that Kelly stayed home. We had every excuse in the book of why we couldn't make it to home group. And we didn't want to put them with a sitter and that kind of thing. And we finally just, uh, I think of just a Holy Spirit leading, we just decided we need something. We need to do something different. And so after about three years of being at Cedar Creek, we went to check out the Judy Home Group one night, and um, that was it. That, that just did it for us. Um, that first night was a life-changing spiritual moment. Um, one of the things you'll learn about me is I'm a crier. <laughs> I uh, cannot sensi- believe that. Oh, yeah. Sensitive to the Holy Spirit, I mm-hmm. am a crier. And, and Kelly says I cry at you know Hallmark movies and TV commercials. Um, <laughs> that night, we got, we got real in home group and wasn't expecting it, um, but it just happened. It was one of those moments that happens. Cindy Burkhart says it's not home group unless somebody cries. And so we had home group the first night uh, that we went. And we were hooked. And over the course of months, um, we became apprentices quickly. Steve and Terry Watson were the apprentices to Jane and Anita, and um, Terry was pregnant. And so we ended up multiplying with the Watsons. And of course, they had a baby. And so I guess that was Rebecca at that time. And um, when that happened, that thrust Kelly and I into that home group leadership role. And so um, it just went, mm-hmm. it exploded from there. And um, yeah. Lots okay. of lots of um, situational things like that, leadership opportunities. As I've shared my story over the years, I talk about just saying yes, you know, as God brings you opportunities. And that, that was certainly true in our early days here was that there were opportunities uh, that God would open a door, get in a home group. Um, I didn't I didn't like little babies, even though I had babies because I was afraid I was going to break them. Yeah. And uh, but Kelly said, no, we're going to serve in the nursery. So you're coming with me. We're going to serve Sunday. And so I started serving in whatever ways that I could. And through that, um, opportunities as we saw growth and as we saw new people and new families coming, uh, God stretched me in the ways that I could would serve. And so um, started serving in Kids Creek. And uh, back then we did um, VBS, which now I say we do VBS every Sunday. That's what Kids Creek is, right? right. It's like VBS every Sunday. Uh, but I was the I was the bumbling idiot fool in every skit that we had, and um, I think there's a video right now on my phone of you dancing in a coconut bra. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Recently, so you you still have it in you. Yep. I don't know if that was Bugbert Bungle. That was one of the names of one of the characters that I that I played during that summer. But yeah, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it takes, right? It's whatever it takes to reach the kids and to reach people, and so. The coconut bra is high on that list of spiritual growth <laughs> steps for Wes, um, but those were those were the the things, the opportunities that I had, and and through that, um, God opened a door um, 
where I started leading worship as part of the worship team. And so I did play guitar. I'm not a musician, but I like to play and um, like to sing and had got that opportunity. And so it went, you know, mm-hmm. one, one thing, thing after, after the another. other. Yeah. <laughs> so when did the moment come where you thought, I think I want to be a pastor? Or did <sighs> did you have that thought? Did it, did it happen like that? No, it didn't. It wasn't that I ever had a thought that I wanted to be a pastor. Um, as we led groups and as I led worship, um, the desire to see life change is something we talk about at Cedar Creek, right? We, we're all about life change, seeing lives changed by Jesus. And like I said a minute ago, when you get excited about what God is doing in your life, you can't help but share that with other people. And so, you know, you get addictive to wanting to see people have their lives radically transformed by the gospel and by who Jesus is and what he has done, the truth of the, the good news of who Jesus is. And so... Um, for me, it was a process of years of uh, saying yes to opportunities and feeling like I never could do enough. Like I was never, I always wanted to do more. It was like, God, give me more opportunities. We remember, you may not remember this because you're young, but there was this thing called the Prayer of Jabez back in the 90s or early 2000s. And it was a little tiny book. And it was this obscure prayer from scripture where this guy named Jabez prayed, Lord, increase my territory, right? Um so that I can do more for you, basically. And that thing was a big deal at a time in our spiritual lives. And we began to pray, God, you know, do whatever you want to do. Increase our territory for your for your glory. And um, through that process, God did. He gave us opportunities and gave me opportunities and ways to serve. And so home group leadership was a big part of that. Um, Pastor Philip used to say and still does say, um, home group leaders are pastors. They're lay ministers, right? And so they're the frontline folks who are pastoring our people and shepherding our people. And before we ever had um, a care and counseling ministry and, and those kind of things, 95% of all care happened in home groups. If you were connected, you were going to be cared for. Mm-hmm. If you got sick, somebody was going to watch your kids. They were going to bring you a meal. They were going to you know, do whatever they needed to do to help you. And so um, those opportunities um, led to growth. And so wanting to do more um, led to... I think the first time I really experienced, um, not really, I don't want to say pastoring. It wasn't that, but um, Philip had gone to, I think, Romania, and we were supposed to have a huddle that Sunday. And so he asked me to fill in for him and lead the huddle. And of course, I'd led worship at huddle and, and done that before, but this was like speaking and teaching. And so I actually threw him a curve, and I, I taught a whole new section on worship and including worship in home groups, which was not a part of how we did home groups back in the early days. And so he accused me of um, taking over and uh, adding this this element <laughs> of worship. But it was it was really cool. And he actually called in from Romania, and we had like a flip phone or whatever you had back in the day, <laughs> held it up to a microphone where he could you know talk mm-hmm. to everybody from Romania. But um, I was just excited. I was excited about what God was doing in us and through us. And that was one of those where I I noticed I felt something different. And so from there, in my FBI career, in my journey there, I went from working cases and being what we would just call a brick agent or a case agent to God giving me other opportunities. And one of those was I became uh, the training coordinator and uh, for the division of uh, the Columbia Division of South Carolina. And so a couple of different people had retired. I ended up being the SWAT team leader and the principal firearms instructor and the training coordinator. And part of that, my responsibilities as training coordinator was teaching. And I'll never forget, I was at the Criminal Justice Academy in, in Columbia 
and I was teaching a bunch of what we called National Academy folks. They were uh, chiefs and sheriffs, uh, captains and lieutenants, um, and I was talking about leadership. And my my two models of leadership for my training that day, one was I called, what would Jethro do? Uh, Jethro was <laughs> Moses's father-in-law who came to visit him uh, one day and said, look, you're doing this all wrong. You need to break these people down into smaller groups, right? Fives and tens and fifties and hundreds, and, and you need to delegate responsibility and authority. And so I use that as a way to help these uh, mid-level and upper-level managers in law enforcement understand uh, their responsibility of leadership and how they could thrive in leadership and not, you know, burn out. Mm -hmm. So uh, taking Jethro's advice, and then I flipped that and talked about uh, Jesus's model of leadership of having his what I called his command staff of twelve, um, and how he poured into those twelve and cared for them and through them, right? The message of the disciples that that went out. Uh, here we are, you know, billions of people and thousands of years later, this movement is is thriving. And at the end of that presentation, somebody came up to me and we were just sort of talking, and he goes, "Hey, I love what you're doing," and I'm like thanks. What do you mean? <laughs> He's like, well, you're preaching. Right. You're right? finding a way to work this into right? the FBI. <laughs> and I'm, and I, but I'd never, I didn't think of it in those terms. I just, that's what God was doing in my life. Mm -hmm. He was using these stories from the Bible to help me understand my leadership and my role. And I was sharing that with other people because I saw that it mattered. It was important. Right. And, and it was truth. And, um, I left there that day thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> What am I doing, right? I'm preaching. What is it? People, they're thinking I'm preaching, and I'm just thinking I'm doing my job. Anyway, that that season uh, was early to mid-2000s, and and God started to do some really – There were, I had a couple of supernatural um, encounters with the Lord. There this, was some, is, this is what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> These are the things that you, know, you tell people, and they're like, he's crazy, right? It's like if you ever go on an outreach trip – and you have this incredible experience and you come home and people go, how was your trip? And you start to tell them like all the things that God did and they go, what? Right. Because <laughs> they can't understand it. Right. Right. And so I just, I say, well, you know what? I know what I know. And, and there were some things that God did um, that just wrecked me and dealt with some things in me that it had, that he had to do some work in. Um, so fall of, I'm going to get the dates wrong. It's around about 2003. Uh, I was going to a training out in Utah, and it was a three-gun school, which was really cool. Uh, tactical rifle, pistol, and shotgun, all the stuff that I love doing. And, and I was going out there to a, a place called Action Target where they were going to just give us this high-level instruction on how to do these things. But before I left, a guy contacted me through church, and he, was, he, he claimed to provide um, security for outreach workers, people on the field. But I'd never heard of the guy, I'd never heard of anything that he had ever done, but he referenced um, CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network. And so actually he reached out to Pastor uh, Richard with this question and Richard asked me to check this guy out. And so I start doing a little research, but through my research, I came across this story that I'd never heard before about these um, outreach workers um, that had gone down to um, South America back in the 50s to reach out to the Alka Indians. And if you've ever heard the story of the Beyond the Gates of Splendor, the um, I forget what it's called, um, Tip of the Spear or whatever, um, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, these guys that, that went down there and were all killed, right, within a week. Um, but they all felt called by the Lord 
to go down here to reach out to this uh, headhunting tribe of, of natives. I'd never heard that story before. And so I encountered it on a CBN website of all things while I was trying to figure out who this other guy was. So I go on this training and I pick up a DVD because we had those back then um, mm-hmm. that would, you know, it was a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert DVD that my mom had given me. My mom had gotten it like at Christmas and said, oh, you might want to listen to this. And I just kind of threw it on the nightstand and there it sat for months. So I go to Utah and I think, well, that'll be something cool that I can watch and listen to if I don't have any, any TV or whatever. Well, that DVD is called Live Out Loud um, through music and song, which is a way that God has always um, spoken to me. Stephen Curtis Chapman tells two stories in this concert. The first one is, is the adoption story of his daughter. I think her name was Shohanna first daughter that they adopted from uh, China. And then he gets into telling this story about these global outreach workers that went down to South America. And it's the Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, this group of guys telling their story. And I'm like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, right? (laughs) This is the story. I just heard about this. And how is this on this DVD? Well, I'm in my hotel room one night and um, I've got headphones on like this (laughs) because I'm listening to on the laptop. And as this story unfolds of these natives who killed these outreach workers, you know, and you're, you're thinking, what purpose was there in this? These mm-hmm. guys went down there. They were young fathers and husbands. And um, within five days, I think, of landing down there, uh, these natives have killed them. And as you start to see the story unfold, um, Stephen Curtis Chapman begins telling the rest of the story, which is, Several years later, some of these natives walk out of the jungle and and they find the sister of one of these guys who stayed behind to translate the Bible into this native language. And they say to her, um, come and teach us of the man maker. And she goes into the jungle with her kids and some others and begins to teach these folks um, about Jesus. And long story short, you have to get the DVD. You have to look at it. it. I think it's on YouTube now, probably. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it, he's singing a song and you see all of these men who killed these outreach workers one by one become followers of Jesus before they themselves died. And at the end of the concert, one whose name was Menkaye, he comes out with, I think it's Steve Saint, which was the son of Nate Saint, who was an infant when his father was killed. And he in his native tongue is it's just such a powerful story but he's telling the story of how he saw jesus in them and how jesus changed his heart and changed his life and as this is unfolding i'm in this hotel room in ely utah by myself with headphones on at my laptop and i am sobbing and just wrecked in my spirit right told you i'm a crier (laughs) and i it's it was so uncontrollable um that i'm laying on the floor and i'm thinking to myself in my rational brain if anybody's walking by this hotel room, they're going to think that somebody's being attacked in there. It was that kind of like just overwhelming um, emotion. And I wrote in my journal um, that night, uh, Lord, I don't know what you want, but whatever it is, give me the faith and give me the strength to say yes. And went on through the week of training and everything else. And there wasn't anything else remarkable about that trip other than that night. But of course, now I'm like, what does this mean? Right? What meaneth this uh, sort of things that God does and came home. And um, about a year later, um, I had an uncle that passed away. And 
um, got a call from my mom and she said, would you mind singing a song or maybe saying a few words at the funeral? And so I'm like, oh yeah, it's something I do. I lead worship and I'm starting to speak a little bit. That's wouldn't be out of the ordinary. So I said, sure. And, um, Kelly, the kids were little, so Kelly stayed here and I was driving down to Florida, uh, for the funeral and began to prepare. And I'd put a couple of songs together and, uh, a message, God, give me the words that you want me to say. And I got down to the funeral and ran into my cousin. It was his father that had passed away. And he said, oh, thanks for being here. So glad you're here. We've got everything taken care of. We've got a Episcopal priest that's going to speak. And we got a barbershop quartet that's going to sing because my uncle was a barbershopper back in the day. And and I'm like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? <laughs> why, why am I here? Right. I mean, I loved him and I was here to pay my respects, but I, I didn't say any of that. Obviously, I'm just puzzled. Right. Mm -hmm. And I sat there um, in the funeral thinking, Lord, did I not hear from you? Did you not give me a message? And did you not um, give me songs to sing? And all. The, and the funny thing was, was the, the priest and the message that he brought was beautiful. And it was very similar to what I felt like God was calling me to, to say. And even the songs that the barbershop quartet did um, was crazy. But thematically, they were they were very similar, mm -hmm. right? But I'm sitting there literally like in the twilight zone wondering, how is all this happening and what did I – I must be going crazy. And so that night I went back to another uncle's house where I was staying because I had to get up early the next morning and drive back to um, South Carolina. And I stopped at this uh, little bagel store in a strip mall. This is where it gets really super weird. <laughs> and because I'm in law enforcement, and I, I do this to this day – I never pull up in front of a building because somebody could run out with a bag of money and a gun in their hand, and you need time to address something like that. <laughs> so I parked out in the middle of this parking lot of this strip mall where this uh, bagel store was, and nobody was there. There wasn't a single car in the parking lot. It's about 7.15 in the morning. I'm in a little red minivan, which we called the man van back then because we tried to make it cool, but it was what I drove. And um, I parked in the middle of the parking lot, and I got out, and I went inside, and I ordered a bagel and a cup of coffee and came out, and I was walking back to the van, which was about maybe 30 yards away. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see somebody walking toward me. And I wouldn't look at him because you didn't make eye contact, right? Because I, I could just, but I could tell it was a homeless guy. I could just tell long dreads. He was just disheveled. And if I made eye contact, I was going to have to have a conversation. And I just, I was ready to get home and get to my family. And I heard him say, right before I, maybe 10 yards away from the van, he said, hey, man, you got any change? And I said, no, nah, man, I ain't got any change. And in that moment, I heard the Holy Spirit say, you got change. You just got a bagel and a coffee in there. And I took maybe two steps, and I went to reach into my pocket for change, and I turned around, and he was gone. He was just gone. I mean, he... I'm in the middle of a parking lot by myself with this van. There was no, there's, he didn't duck behind a car. He didn't run behind the, I mean, he was just gone. Now I'm really freaking out, right? <laughs> I get in the van, I put my coffee in the cup holder and I set my bagel down and I start driving and I'm looking around and nobody there. And it's probably two hours. I was almost to Daytona. So maybe a little longer than that. I just sat in silence, just driving, trying to figure it all out, right? Um, and in this small, still voice, I finally heard, I can't trust you with the big things unless I can trust you with the little things. And then I'm like, what does that mean? Right. So I'm sobbing again as I'm driving, <laughs> trying to figure all of this out. And I'll never forget, I, I made it back home. And whether it was that night or the next day, I don't know, but I, I went to Philip and Terry's house and 
um, was trying to share, you know, what I had experienced and asking them, what does this mean? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and even in, in, I I can, I can picture it trying to communicate it to them, um, through tears, you know, and it took me a while, but I, I came to understand that, you know, a funeral was a big thing. Um, but the little things like caring for somebody just walking down the street that maybe needed something to eat or whatever, um, was just as important, maybe even more important, and that those things are connected, right? Um, so a couple years later, I pull up to the Hardys up at number one and I-20. I'm back in my FBI mode, firearms instructor, got a trailer full of guns and bullets behind me, and I'm headed out at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning to go run a firearms training. And this guy walks out of the Hardys, walks across my path, and he obviously looks homeless, long, shaggy hair, but I see his um, flip-flops. I called him flip-flop guy. And the soles of his flip-flops look like paper, like he'd been walking on them for a while. And he went over to, if you're familiar with where the Hardee's is, there's a racetrack gas station. I think it's racetrack. It's right there. And he went in there. And I said, Lord, I knew I had a pair of flip-flops in the back of my truck. They were awesome. They were Merrell's. They were my favorite flip-flops. I could run in them. They were that good. They had soles on them like that thick. And I loved these flip-flops, right? But something in me just knew I got to give them to that guy. And so uh, I said, Lord, if I'm supposed to give this guy my flip-flops, I'm going to pull over there. You just make him come out of the store, right? Uh, And so I pull around there, and sure enough, he comes walking out of the store. So I rolled down the window. I said, hey, man. He said, hey. I said, what size shoe do you wear? He said, 12. I said, hey, your lucky day. Could you use these? He said, yeah, man. I hand them to him through the window. He goes, thanks. I go, you're welcome. And I drive off. (laughs) And I get about halfway down the the ramp onto I twenty, and I think you should have given him your biscuit, man. You got, you know, I've got. I think I had two biscuits at the time, and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, so now I'm crying again. I don't know why. So I go home and I tell Kelly, and of course she thinks I'm crazy. And um, I say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a backpack in my truck, and I'm going to put some hiking boots and some socks. I had all kinds of stuff. I mean, I always was getting new boots, new socks, new gear, you know, and stuff that I could never use. Um, some protein bars and snacks and stuff. And I packed that backpack up and it's a couple of weeks later and um, I stopped for gas. It's firearms day. I stop at the gas station up there at the interstate and I'm pumping gas and I look across the street and there's flip-flop guy and he's walking down the sidewalk right there by Bainham's or whatever the restaurant is. And, in your flip-flops? Uh, you know what? <laughs> he was not in my flip-flops. Um, and I, all I remember was his t-shirt. I'll tell you about that in a second. So I'm like, okay, I've got this book bag full of stuff. I got to get it to him, right? So I pull out. I have to go down. I have to do a big U-turn with this trailer behind me and all that. And I pull up to him next on the sidewalk, and I beat the horn. He walks over, and I go, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, good. And he's leaning in the window now. And I go, I got this backpack, and there's some shoes and some socks and some food and stuff. I said, can you use that? And he's like, yeah, thanks. And I'm like, you're welcome. And I give it to him. And he just steps back from the truck just looking at me. And his shirt says, God is good. (laughs) And now it's like, I'm back in the twilight zone, right? I'm like, are you kidding me? You're crying again? I'm crying again, right? (laughs) And um, I just knew that um, what God was doing was he was continuing to give me opportunities to say yes. And he was just showing me different ways to care for people and and being faithful in the little things. And and that what my takeaway was. Um, the little things were um, just doing the things that God had put in front of me faithfully until such a time that he might 
do something different. And I didn't know what that was. Right. Uh, certainly did not ever think that I would leave the FBI, that I would um, resign and go into ministry. That was never part of a plan, never even a thought. Matter of fact, when that started to be something um, that I was sensing, I prayed against it. Right? <laughs> Lord, please, no. Just let me finish. Just let me do eight years. I'll retire, and then I'll go wherever you want me to go. And I joke to this day that if God had asked me to go to India or to Africa uh, as an outreach worker, I would have said no, and it would have been easy. And the funny thing is I've been to India once and Africa twice since then, so <laughs> never tell God what you won't do, right? Right. But, um, yeah, th those were a couple of the supernatural, just God-ordained things. Mm -hmm. um, funny story was several years after we had launched the West Campus, that guy actually um, was brought to church one Sunday by a couple that found him on the side of the road. He was sitting in the front row. Flip-flop guy was there. Do you and, think he uh, remembered you? I don't know. Uh, and it was so weird for me that I – it was only in the aftermath of the Sunday that I had a conversation with the guy that brought him. Uh, I don't know whether he did or not, yeah. uh, but I, I know it was him, mm -hmm. and um, they found him and, and never could find him again. So I, I don't know whether that was the conclusion to the story <laughs> that God allowed him just to pop up one more time to say, "See, now your people are caring for a guy that you know they found yeah. walking down the side of the road." I don't know. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So, do you feel like this next step in your ministry career in the life of Cedar Creek Church? Is this just another one of the little things along the way that, that you're just trusting God and being faithful in as you get ready to launch the West Campus into Fearless Church? Yeah. I, I don't know that I've thought of it that way, but I think you're right. I think it is. I mean, one of the truths that I've learned after, I mean, 14 and a half years as a pastor, but 20 plus years of ministry, 26 years um, of really following Jesus and trying to do what he's asked me to do, um, I've learned a couple of things. And one is... Um, that if you if you serve long enough, you're going to be asked to change and transition and do different things, right? You're going to have to kill ministries that you created and started. Um, and not that we're killing the West Campus by any stretch of the imagination, but we're changing it. We're, you know, um, the end of the West Campus will be a new beginning for a new church. And um, in, in that way, there's a lot of not angst. I just have a lot of emotion, and I'm doing all I can not to cry here today. <laughs> um, no promises. But because of what this place has um, meant to me and my family, knowing what God has done in us and through us here, uh, here at Banks Mill and at the West Campus uh, for the last 26 years, it's huge. And, you know, life is ministry and, and ministry is life. And it, so many people try to separate them. Uh, you know, Pastor Philip talks about the pieces of the pie and people try to keep their church piece separate from all the rest of it, but it's not. And the sooner that you realize that life is ministry and ministry is life and that as followers of Jesus, um, you know, it, he calls us to, to live it all in the same way. Um, I, I joke that I'm not for everybody um, because I'm I'm just me, and I don't know how to be anybody else but me. And I've tried. I mean, there were seasons where I tried to be Richard Swift, or I tried to be Philip Lee in the way that I communicated. You know, I've, I tried to be um, Craig Groeschel or whoever it was, you know, um, and I can't. I just have to be who Wes Holbrook is. And much to the chagrin of my wife and people, there are times I say things and she just flinches and, you know, it's like, oh, I can't believe he said that. And I'm like, sorry, <laughs> God will make up the difference. You know, he'll, he'll fill in the gaps. But, um, yeah. That's awesome. 
Um, you said something earlier, and it, it's really timely with the, the message that we just heard from Pastor Philip this past week about being faithful in the little things. And Pastor Philip said the little P purpose. Mm. And then that's where it shows up in the big P purpose. And we may never see the end result, this side of heaven, but it's it's really cool to hear about how you've been faithful your entire life through the FBI, through your marriage, through following God's calling and using those little moments. And um, I'm just grateful I got to hear the story and we get to share the story with everybody listening. So, so can I tell you something about that? Yes. Um, with the not knowing what Pastor Phillips' message was Sunday, um, I had a message about telling your story. <laughs> we started a, a three-week series called One Small Step, and my message Sunday was all about just sharing your story and, and being faithful. And I didn't do it at 9 o'clock, and I don't know why, because um, I had thought about it, but it just didn't come out in my preparation. But in between 9 and 11, I realized that I needed to tell a story. And that story was about my high school football coach, which is a guy named Jerry Rains who was faithful in the little p, uh, which 30 years later was a huge purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was the first person to really challenge me and to tell me about Jesus. He was the guy that um, set up a youth rally, youth event in our high school basketball gym, which I think is great because my church now meets in a basketball gym, and I was the guy that got saved in a basketball gym at high school. Uh, but Jerry Rains um, would would tell you about Jesus, and he he just lived it. He lived his faith for everybody to see, unashamed, fearlessly, right? And that guy, before he died, he's been, he passed away a couple years ago. Um, he was able to come here. I was actually speaking at Banks Mill one day, and he was here for that, and I got to bring him up and and honor him and thank him. But um, he he told a story. He said, if I had made a list of a hundred people, hundred my former players that I thought would be a pastor one day, Wes Holbrook would have been 100 on that <laughs> list, right? But the cool thing about Jerry, about Coach Reigns and about his purpose was um, at his death, there were eight guys at his funeral who are all pastors now, wow. former players. Um, and so I shared that Sunday and I just said, that's a big deal, but think of the countless hundreds, if not thousands of people who are following Jesus because of Jerry Reigns, right? I mean, how many business leaders, how many, you know, stay-at-home moms, how many, whoever. And you know, the ripple whatever. effect that they have in their own communities. Right, right. It's, it's, it's untold. Thousands of people that because he was faithful as a teacher, as a coach, to just live his faith and be real and authentic, um, the difference that it made. It's an eternal difference. And so, yeah, that, that picture – Again, and it just confirms to me that God's in all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking earlier at All Staff about communicating this launch and how so many people are so quick to say, oh, it's a church split. I'm like, no, this is who we are, mm-hmm. right? This is from the very beginning, Pastor Phillips said, we don't know what God's going to do with these campuses. We're we're going to plant campuses, but they may one day become auto- autonomous churches. We don't know. And so to to know that, that Pastor Phillips shared that message on Sunday, leveraging a verse that was central to my journey and my walk, knowing that Sunday I was telling a message or sharing a message called Tell Your Story, right? And and the point of it was um, people can argue Bible, they can argue theology and translations all day long, but what they can't argue is what Jesus has done in your life, the difference that he's made in your life. And so knowing who you were before Jesus, knowing that you're forgiven and that you've received his grace, and then who you are after that, that's the story that we all have, and it's unique to all of us. And that was the point that I was trying to make to my folks Sunday was um, 
outreach is personal. I can't tell your story like you can tell your story. And what Pastor Phillips said to me, gosh, 15 years ago now, when I was trying to talk him out of asking me to be the campus pastor, he said, you'll reach people that I could never reach because of your story. And so I, what I told folks Sunday was they'll reach people that I could never reach because of their story. So we just got to tell our story. So thanks for letting me tell my story. <laughs> You're welcome. Any other go backs? Any other stories you, you want to share that even like little tidbits or crazy FBI things? <laughs> Nothing that I could tell you that uh, oh, I, I, it's it's confidential. It's confidential, still classified. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I joke all the time that I'm a conspiracy theorist because I've been a part of some conspiracies, you know, mm-hmm. as part of the federal government. But um, I'm sure there's a ton. Yeah, and and there are still many more podcasts that could possibly happen. <laughs> I know everybody's like, you need to write a book one day, and I'm like, I don't know. Uh, if you ever write a book and you work for the FBI, you, it has to go through a publishing process where they have to like sign off on it and agree that you know you can say those kind of things and all that. Wow. But, I don't know. I don't know that I would ever do that. But I love telling stories. Um, it's part of your ministry. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Because they're so powerful. They just they communicate in ways that other ways, other things can't. Mm-hmm. So I'm motivated this week in our home group to challenge people to formulate their own story yeah. or share their story if they're brave enough. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. And it's a good one to story. bring back the Cedar Creek Church podcast. We've been away for a month or two. And so I know that this was um, a really cool story to hear. And I hope that it reminds you that your story is important. And all those little moments put together, they might be the little P purposes that we're living out. And we're all on a mission Um, to tell people about Jesus and sharing our story helps do that. So thanks for listening and we'll be back soon.